Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to the show tonight. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, tonight's show is about the lost empire, black Freemasonry in the Old West, from 1867 to 1906, with author and genealogist James Aura Morgan III. James Morgan transports readers to the period when Western outlaws ruled the territories and brings them face-to-face with the black men who brought enlightenment, guidance, and protection to the formerly enslaved through organization. James will tell us about Captain William Dominic Matthews, a Freemason, Civil War officer, and abolitionist who became one of the most illustrious and controversial figures of his time. James R. Morgan III is a graduate of Howard University in Washington, D.C., where he obtained a Bachelor of Arts degree in communications and and a member of the James Dent Walker chapter of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society and a panelist on the Black Progen Live YouTube show. He is also a founding member and co-panelist on the monthly YouTube-based show entitled The Prince Hall Think Type. So let me give just a warm welcome to James R. Morgan III to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome back to the show, James. Thank you very much. You know, it's an honor and a privilege to be back on here. Uh, as I said, I think the first time I was on here, I used to, uh, to, to, to to dream that one day I would be important enough to be on this show. So to, to be on here for a third time, uh, man, I feel like I've come a long way. This is, this is an honor. Thank you. Oh, it's an honor to have you, James. So, James, let's start at the beginning because you entitled this book, the Lost Empire. Please tell us what you're talking about. Not a problem, not a problem. 
Well, the reason why I call this book The Lost Empire is because you have to understand that there is an entire world of um, scholarship and writing on the history of Freemasonry uh, in the world and in the United States. And more specifically, there's an entire uh, genre of history on African-American Freemasonry, um, which I have uh, spent probably the the better part of the past 10 years um, really combing through everything that I could on that topic. Um, I, I am the Grand Historian of the print, Most Worshipful Prince Hall Grand Lodge of the District of Columbia, and so that's a part of my job in, in that capacity. Um, the reason why I call the book The Lost Empire is because uh, in, in doing the research for this book, what I uncovered was that uh, was a history of a, uh, a Grand Lodge of African American Masons that had been erased from our published history in a very conscious way. Uh, The name of this Grand Lodge, and when I say Grand Lodge, what I mean is that is the body that governs what we call a jurisdiction or a state in this this country of of Mason, of Masonic members, right? So um, when I uncovered this information, uh, I didn't realize that it was just the tip of the iceberg because what I also was able to find was that this Grand Lodge, which was known as the uh, King Solomon Grand Lodge of Kansas, uh, it actually was one of, if not the biggest uh, African-American Masonic Grand Lodges during the last half of the 19th century. Um, And so when I called it the Lost Empire, I was combining the fact that this history had really been written out of history and I was also uh, combining the notion that this particular organization and its importance was very big in scope and membership and whatnot, but it had been wiped away from almost completely from the written record. So we're trying to put it back in proper historical context. Well, that's uh, quite interesting. So while you're trying to put it in proper context, Let's start off with something else, because you mentioned Kansas, but when you speak of the Old West, exactly Mm -hmm. how are you defining the Old West? Right. Well, a lot of folks, um, when they think of the Old West or or sometimes known as the Wild West, a lot because of Hollywood and whatnot, people's minds automatically go just to Texas. And that's not really historically accurate. Um, when you talk about the Old West, you're really talking about the regions, of course, going west of the Mississippi, the whole idea of the Louisiana Purchase and people going out west to uh, places like, yes, you did have you know, Houston and Dallas pop up over time and Austin and San Antonio over time, yes, but you also had Dodge City. You know, you also have uh, Leavenworth. You also have the Oklahoma territories and the Indian territory. So, so I, I'm, the, the scope of the book, it starts out with a focus on Kansas because that's where uh, the King Solomon Grand Lodge was, was based out of and where it started. But over time, this Grand Lodge grew to, to have jurisdiction over African-American Masons um, as far north as, as, uh, as Cheyenne, Wyoming, and as far south as San Antonio, Texas. Um, again, at the time when I started researching this story, um, I did not realize that that's what I was uncovering. But the more I researched, the more I dug, the more I realized that I was really finding the, the lost heritage uh, of us as, as the Masonic Order in the West, but also a very 
interesting and unique story in African-American history um, as well. Um, to give you one example, then I'll uh, be quiet, is before writing this book, um, I remember asking around to other people about histories of black masons in the Wild West just because I was just, I was just interested. And the only book that people really could point me to was the official history of uh, the – well, the name of the, the formal title of the book is, the, is Prince Hall Freemasonry in the Lone Star State by Dr. Robert Uzzle, who's a, who's a friend of mine. Um, that's the history of, of the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Texas, all right, um, which was good. It's a good book, but it just speaks about Texas. The book that mm-hmm. I wrote um, covers the history prior to the Masonic Order arriving among blacks in Texas, and I can tell you how it got there as well as uh, the surrounding states as well. Um, so it was really put me in a really unique kind of historical space uh, in doing that. So, yeah. Yes. So before we even get deep into the book, I want to go through Absolutely. a few little questions with you because your your cover is very intriguing. It's, it's a beautiful cover. But tell us who is the gentleman on the cover. Not a, not a problem. Uh, the gentleman on the, on the cover of the book, his name is Captain William Dominic Matthews. Uh, he was born in October of 1828, on, uh, actually October the 25th of 1828 to be exact. Um, he was born on the eastern shore of Maryland uh, as a free man, um, and he lived a very interesting life. Um, he, um, at the age of about 20 years old, migrated to Jamaica for a few years, and then he returned to the United States and became a grain merchant. Um, he purchased a ship and was going up and down the East Coast uh, in that trade. During that time period, in about 1855 or 1856, he joined a lodge uh, under the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, which for those who do not know, um, Prince Hall was an abolitionist. He was a person who was – he was an abolitionist in the 1700s and the early 1800s uh, who worked as an abolitionist and a leather worker, and he established the very first lodge of – African-American Masons, known as African Lodge Number 459. Um, and in doing this, uh, he, knowingly or unknowingly, Prince Hall started the African-American Masonic Order, which is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, African-American secular or non-religious organization in the United States. Um, from that one lodge, over time, sprang other lodges and then eventually grand lodges into Philadelphia, um, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and it forms this 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 network of black men who are members of the same fraternity, practicing the same rituals or what have you, that um, really expands into now an international organization um, and, and, and is really the first black fraternal organization in the United States. So to go back to Captain Matthews, when he joins this organization, um, He's really coming into a net, an already established network um, that is very, very entrenched into the politics of the Underground Railroad, uh, as well as uh, some people are involved in the Back to Africa movement with the uh, with the, the colonization efforts and a number of other things. So this was really uh, a good thing for him to be a part of, especially as a free black man in pre-Civil War years. Well, what happens with Captain Matthews uh, is that – well, he's not a captain at the time, but what happens with him is that he um, eventually is – uh, convinced to move out west by uh, a man by the name of Daniel Reed Anthony, who was the older brother of Susan B. Anthony, and he was also a member of the Caucasian uh, Masonic Order, if you will. 
Um, he convinces him to move out to Leavenworth, Kansas, and, and a young William Matthews again continues in his underground railroad activities. Um, when the civil and he also establishes one of the first black businesses in Kansas at, in the territory at the time, which is uh, known as the Waverly House, was a hotel and restaurant that he owned. Um, and so on the cover of the book, you see Captain Matthews, but the street, for those who, if you look at the cover, um, the street is actually, that you see on there is Shawnee Street, which is the street that, that Captain Matthews actually lived on. Um, and and so it was kind of divine uh, guidance that these two pictures, I, we were able to get these two pictures and put them together. At the time, uh, we were designing the cover. I did not know that that was the street. So it just, you know, it was, I don't believe in coincidences. Um, so, so that's why, the, why the, the cover is that way. Um, but anyway, what happens with, with, with William Matthews, which, which really seals his, um, his historical notoriety, is that when the Civil War breaks out, he organizes the first Kansas Colored Volunteer uh, Regiment, which eventually becomes the 79th United States Colored Troops. Okay? Um, he serves as a primary recruiter for that regiment, for that unit. And he uh, actually served as the captain of Company D, hence why you'll hear me refer to him as Captain Matthews throughout the evening. Um, that unit um, was the first black uh, regiment to see battle during the Civil War, um, which a lot of folks do not know. Um, so they, they had about seven or eight major battles, such as Poison Springs and Island Mound. Uh, uh, the battle, he also fought the Battle of Fort Scott as well. Uh, so, so he really was a battle-hardened individual by the end of the Civil War. On the other hand, he also, on top of being an entrepreneur and a Civil War veteran, he also becomes the first uh, Grand Master, as I mentioned earlier, of the King Solomon Grand Lodge of Kansas, which was a very important thing at the time because at this time, black Freemasonry really had not spread out west at all, with the exception of California. That's another story for another day. But in terms of, you know, the Tornado Alley, that whole that region of the country, so to speak, there really wasn't a black Masonic presence until he brought it there. And he did it, I mean, really with, with elbow grease, you know, prayer and, and, and God knows what else. And um and really in doing that, he sets he extends that network of black Masonic activism and whatnot to the Western frontier. And um and if you and for those who, who get the book, you'll see that uh all the trappings of the West uh, that you that you can think of, he he ended up running into and had to negotiate uh, for his for himself and for his members. You know, as I listen to you, it's almost like you're you you live this. <laughs> you really are into <laughs> understanding uh, this this history. So, what yes, made it motivated you to actually research and write this book? Oh, no problem, no problem. Well, let me start at the beginning, like any good story. Um, in May of 2014, um, I was um, the senior warden of my lodge, which which means that 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 means I'm the I was the second highest officer in my local lodge that I'm a member of, uh, Corinthian Lodge Number 18. And I was contacted by a woman uh, named Denisha Swanigan, who she was nice enough to write an introduction. Uh, for the book, uh, and she had two documents, and I had no idea at the time these two documents would take over the rest of my life for, for four or five years. Um, these two documents alluded to relatives of hers that were involved in Freemasonry in the 1800s. Um, one document was a letter that she and her sister had located, um, which 
was written on Masonic Grand Lodge letterhead from the, uh, what's now known as the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Missouri. Um, and it was from her uncle, John J. Bruce, to her other great uncle, Senator Blanche Kelso Bruce, the first full-term African-American to serve in, in, in the United States Congress. Um, the letter, the contents really didn't have Masonic significance. Um, it was basically congratulating Senator Bruce on his recent marriage to his wife, Josephine. Um, but she, you know, we kind of knew all that already, but she was trying to understand what was the letterhead about who was what was this Grand Lodge? Which at the time it wasn't named Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Missouri. At the time it had a, a, an earlier name prior to that. But I was able to decipher that very quickly for her. Uh, we also were able to note that John J. Bruce um, was the Grand Treasurer at the time um, when the letter was written. So uh, I was able to kind of explain to her about that and who we were as Masons and what the significance was of our organization and what it is for today as well. Um, but then the other document she had uh, really was the real seed that sparked this book. Um, she had located a newspaper article that um, was from 1869, from, from the early summer of 1869, which talked about another uncle of hers named Henry C. Bruce. And basically what had happened was that Henry C. Bruce was serving as in a, in a, a position known as the Grand Lecturer um, in Kansas at this time, and he had been shot by a man who the, the article names him as George Thompson or George Thomas, but his real name was Alan Pinks. Um, Alan Pinks had shot her uncle, Henry Bruce. Um, he had been arrested and charged, and he could not make bail. And on his way being escorted from the courthouse back to his jail cell, um, the article notes that a, a gang of about 10 or 12 black men on horseback rode up, surrounded the party, and gunned Alan, Alan Pinks down in broad daylight uh, in the streets of Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, in, in revenge for the attack on, on Brother Bruce. Um, the, the primary person that's named as leading this group of men was W.D. Matthews, who the article referred to as hmm. their highest muckamuck, right? <laughs> and so I said, wait a minute, you know, at the time, I knew a very little bit about Captain Matthews. Um, I knew he was a Civil War veteran, and I knew that in a lot of from, from a lot of more senior Masonic historians, if you will, and researchers, that he, he was known basically as a bad guy among us. And I wanted to get specific on well, why was he a bad guy? What did he do that was so heinous? You know, um, and I really couldn't find much on him um, except for the fact, thankfully, that. One of my mentors in, in Masonic history, Brother Alton Roundtree, who was nice enough to write the foreword for the book, uh, he, in 2010, published a history of what was known as it's the, a book called The National Grand Lodge and Prince Hall Freemasonry, The Untold Truth. And with that book, not to bore everybody with the specifics, but basically what he talks about in that book is the fact that in 1847, um, there, was, there were a lot of divisions and whatnot among African-American Masons. And so what we did was we formed a national Grand Lodge to govern the affairs of the individual state Grand Lodges. You, you, you follow? And so this was, the, this was the way that we kind of organized things for, for about 30 years or so, with a few exceptions uh, to that. Um, and then in, after the Civil War, there basically was a breakdown in that structure, and, and the majority – 
of the state Grand Lodges seceded away from this national Grand Lodge structure to include the Grand Lodge that I'm a member of here in D.C. We left that group in 1871. Um, so today you have um, most people, when they think of African-American Freemasons, they're thinking of Prince Hall-affiliated Masons, which I'm a member of, right? But you have this other group out there that's a lot smaller than us called Prince Hall Origin, and those are people who are descended from the Masons who decided to keep the National Grand Lodge structure kind of going, regardless of what anyone else thought. Well, it turns out that William D. Matthews was at the head of that group, that he said, no, we want to keep this thing going regardless of what anyone says. And so I had my answer, one of my answers as to why he was a bad guy, at least from a political sentiment, right? Um, But the thing that I learned about him as I kept researching for the book was that, I mean, this guy, I mean, you could not have cast a better person to be the grand master of the Masons in the Old West. I mean, uh, the most famous picture of Captain Matthews, and you can, for, for the listeners uh, listening now or on the, on the replay, you can just Google his name, and you'll find very easily a photo of him, you know, strapped with two pistols and a, and a cavalry saber, for good measure. You know, um, he was very rough and tumble, uh, no-nonsense kind of guy. And so um, uh, in researching that one story for Miss Swanigan, because she wanted to know, again, who was, what was the significance of her ancestor being a Mason and being the grand lecturer? Who was William Matthews? What was this? In trying to answer that question for her, um, the things that we started to find were not adding up with the published histories of black Freemasonry already. And so over time, we, we, what we needed to do to get the full story in context was we needed to basically write our own, and that's that's where the book came from. And so now I, I have a question. So what did the Masons okay. do back then in the Old West? What was their mission? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. You know, just tell us that. And also, you know, I, I want to know just who were the Masons? I mean, did they have certain characteristics? What made mm-hmm. a Mason a Mason? Uh, what made a person okay, no want problem. to become a Mason? <laughs> No problem, no problem. Well, uh, Freemasonry uh, teaches certain lessons of morality and spirituality and manhood, that um, such as faith, hope, charity, uh, benevolence to the poor, um, you know, uh, trying to become more in tune with uh, whatever the God or religion is of a, of a particular brother. We're not a religious organization uh, specifically, uh, but we are a spiritual organization um, as well. Um, and, we, and what we do is in, in certain, certain practical ways, we try to um, improve ourselves as men so that we can improve our communities. Um, so some of the things that the brothers were doing and that we still do today, for example, as I mentioned earlier, uh, charity uh, to the poor, scholarships, uh, you know, we, we do uh, at the time in, of the book, Masonic Lodge, Lodge uh, halls or temples, as we call them, were real community spaces where um, you could have not only social activities, but political discourses being had, not necessarily during the lodge meetings per se, but forming space for community and for deep thought. Um, you know, uh, a lot of our history has been linked to the African Methodist Episcopal Church's history as well, so you'll see that cross comparison and during and also during the time of the uh the beginning of the book and and during captain matthew's time um there was a very real link to 
the Underground Railroad, and later, and years later, to civil rights activities. Um, even down to today, a lot of our Grand Lodges, um, including mine that, that I'm a member of in D.C., uh, we've housed the NAACP and other civil rights-based organizations, partially because there was a time when they, I mean, even if they had the money to lease a property or, or a space, uh, certain businesses, they wouldn't want the NAACP there, but they knew they could come to the Masons to have a safe space to, to form community. Um, so, so those those are just some of the things that that we did and that we that we do, um, you know, um, among among a plethora of things. Um, at the time, we also will see that being involved in the Masonic Order also was a means of protection, um, as well, um, from violence from without the community. Um, we also will find uh, examples of in in various states where being a member of a Masonic lodge or, or some other type of fraternal order um, was, was one of the primary means that African-Americans were able to get um, burial insurance and what we today would call workman's comp, right? Um, so before you had Obamacare <laughs> and all these other things uh, today, uh, your being a part of various fraternal lodges was a primary means of, of insurance, um, mutual aid and whatnot um, in times of sickness and death. Uh, so, so there were very, there were very eccentric and esoteric benefits to membership, but then there are also some very practical uh, benefits as well to being able to be a member of a fraternal organization. Um, and then to answer your question about who who were the Masons um, or who we are, uh, we we like to say that we take good men and make them better. Um, so uh, we're not taking, uh, or we weren't, or we're not supposed to take, you know, criminals or anybody of ill repute. Um, but we want men of, of good, solid moral character. Um, doesn't matter the religion that someone may be a part of, but you can't. But you could not be an atheist and be a Mason. Um, but we want people of good, solid moral character who um, are striving to improve themselves in this thing that we call life. Um, that's really the fu- fundamental foundation of uh, of Freemasonry. Wow. Well, we're going to take a break. Come back and start off talking about the Empire Rising. Okay, just a quick break. questions. 
Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to James R. Morgan III. Give us some background information on the Freemasons. So we have a, a, a comment out of the chat. This is Kanika, and she's saying that her grandmother was a member of the Order of the Eastern Star and married a Freemason in Cleveland. So she's been trying to find out what Prince Hall Freemasons do and the Order of Eastern Star do. So can you tell us a little bit about this, and then let's go into the Empire Rising. Okay, sure. Well, well, to to reiterate uh, what I said a second ago, um, you know, fraternal organizations um, do a lot of the same things across the board, regardless of what the uh, the brand name is that you put on them. Um, scholarships for, for, for students trying to go to college. Um, they're doing other, you know, community cleanups, um, you know, a number of other, you know, frater- um, um, charitable and benevolent types of projects. Um, uh, you know, in, you know, in, in my uh, Grand Lodge in D.C., we do a prostate cancer walk, breast cancer walk, all those type of things um, as well. Um, if she's referring to the um, more secretive, ritualistic stuff, I can't really get into that per se, uh, except to say that um, that we do practice um, initiation rituals, or, or we call them degrees, which were very common things, which are, are or are very common things, I should say, if for anybody who's involved in any type of fraternity or sorority, um, you know, to have some type of ritual to bind the membership together. Um, you may have a secret handshake or a secret legend or a mythology, if you will, that's supposed to be only known between the membership, hence why I won't go into it um, in, in this platform. But um, the whole idea is to teach lessons of morality to the members. That's really the, 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 the kind of goal um, to, so that they can then take those lessons out into the world as they interact with their friends and families and colleagues and what have you. Um, okay. And, and, the way, and well, again, the way that we you. show that is by charity and benevolence. Okay, so tell us about uh, how you've broken down this book. And I know you start off with the Empire Rising. So help us understand Absolutely. what's going on. <laughs> no problem. Well, well what, I, what I basically wanted to do was to tell the story uh, in, in kind of a unique way. So um, the, the book is broken down to four episodes, uh, Empire Rising, um, A Worthy Adversary, Resetting the Stone and the Setting Sun. And so basically it's four periods really of Captain William Matthews' life, uh, Empire Rising being the first one, um, really talks about the beginnings of Kansas as a American territory and, as a, and how it becomes a state and what was it like there. Um, I talk about John Brown and um, the, the fact that you had the Kansas-Nebraska Act, this whole idea of, well, are, is Kansas going to be a – a slave state or a free state, and what what kind of environment did that really set uh, before William Matthews even gets there? Um, you know, it was a very violent place, uh, a very a place of a lot of uncertainty, for, particularly for African Americans and even for the white community. Um, you know, the, the, before Kansas becoming a state 
I mean, could be a TV show in and of itself. I mean, they had several constitutional conventions, and I think at one time they even had more than one more than one legislature. One was pro-slavery, one was anti-slavery. Um, eventually, the anti-slavery groups won, won out, um, but it was you know there was a lot of bloodshed um, prior to that. Um, so I talked about that, and then I also tried to make sure that we discussed uh, the importance of Freemasonry um, in Black America during the colonial era and leading up into the antebellum years and whatnot, the years before the Civil War, and how it gets to Kansas and to the West. Um, the same way that we talk about um, the, you know, the Trail of Tears and whatnot, we talk about the wagon trains going west for, for, the, for white America. Well, well, well African, African Americans, we were there too, going west as well. And some of us were members of the Masonic Order and other similar types of groups. And so we're, they're bringing their, not just their personal belongings, but we're bringing our culture with us. We're bringing our various organizations, our religious beliefs, our cuisine um, out to the West as well to inform that space the same way we've done everywhere else we've been. Um, and so, so, so I try to make sure that I talk about that, and then we zoom in on the life of William Matthews. Um, again, as I said earlier, he's a young entrepreneur, uh, and what happens is he he uh, one of the things that happens before his his kind of Masonic story takes off. Um, he actually got married to his wife Fanny um, who, in um, in Missouri, and what happens is that one of her ex lovers uh, named John C. Price actually gets very upset when he finds out that they're married, and so he basically goes through the streets of Leavenworth hunting down William Matthews. Uh, he finds him. Um, in front of a grocery store owned by Charles H. Langston. Um, for those who don't know who Charles H. Langston was, he was an abolitionist and an important figure in history in his own right. Um, but the thing he's probably most remembered for is being the grandfather of Langston Hughes. Um, well, William Matthews and John C. Price end up having a gunfight outside of Charles Langston's grocery store. And uh, it ends up, long story short, William Matthews uh, got the better hand and, and, and gunned John C. Price down in the alleyway. Um, on the side of the building. Um, some guy named Reverend Hiram Rhodes Revels, uh, for those who don't know, he eventually becomes the um, first African-American to serve in Congress. Um, he also was a Prince Hall Freemason as well. Uh, Hiram Revels comes out and actually helps John Price into a house and administers last rites to him a few days later as he dies. Um, you know, this all these events I'm talking about take place in the months leading up to William Matthews establishing the first African-American Grand Lodge in the West, uh, again, the King Solomon Grand Lodge of Kansas. Um, so that, to me, kind of set the stage for the story that, you'll, that you would read about later on in the book, um, because this, you know, unlike a lot of other states that I've researched where black masonry was really linked to the church and to education and whatnot, this story really is one where you know the backdrop of the West really plays a major role in the story and in the character of William Matthews as he grows uh, through the years. And so I hope that I communicated that effectively um, in the book. Um, so the reason why it's called Empire Rising, as I said earlier, is because this is the birth of, from this one man, he ends up becoming what I argue. And, and you know others may disagree, but I hope that they read the book first before they decide to. I argue that William Matthews may very well be uh, one of the most powerful and important black men in the Old West that most people have never heard about. Um, and I think that I proved that in the book, in, in my view. 
Yes, uh, you, you definitely approved that in your book. And, you know, one of the, the things that struck me as I looked through your book was how you documented through evidence. Uh, if you had a theory or a, an assumption, you you actually found documentation to support uh, some of the, the statements that you would make in the book. So tell us about your whole research uh, methodology and where did you go for some of your sources and how can your methodology and this book help genealogists? Certainly, certainly. Um, the primary uh, source that I used to write the book um, really was the Leavenworth Times newspaper. Um, there was, again, Leavenworth Times newspaper was owned by Matthew's close friend, Daniel Reed Anthony, right, who himself was a Mason. Um, and so thankfully to that with that newspaper source in hand, uh, I was able to find a lot of information on this Grand Lodge um, and, and on the life of William Matthews overall. Um, there really had not, has not been a book that looked at the life of William Matthews. Um, there is another book by um, Dr. Ian Michael Spurgeon uh, called Soldiers in the Army of Freedom where, where Captain Matthews is on the cover. However, that book is a story of his Civil War unit, not really of him. And it really kind of tells the story of the white officers of that unit. Again, not really him, even though he's on the cover. Um, and that's with all due respect to Dr. Spurgeon, because his his is also a good source to check out. Um, but I really wanted to look at William Matthews' life. So what I had to do was look at the newspapers in Kansas. Uh, thankfully, a lot of stuff was on online on newspapers.com. Uh, I went out. I actually took a trip uh, in 2017 to um, Ms. Swanigan's family reunion out in Leavenworth and did some research there. We actually got to go to, his, to William Matthews' grave um, as well, um, which, was, which was really cool. Um, you know, I, I, another source that I utilize that I always try to promote is uh, the proceedings of various Masonic Grand Lodges um, as well um, to kind of get the firsthand account because, what I again, to go back to my earlier statement, um, what I realized was that I was in new territory because a, the previously published histories that I already had in my possession, for the most part, they didn't really do me as much good um, because no one had looked at this subject, and the few that had even tried to talk about it really kind of ignored it and brushed them to the side. Um, so what I did was I, I spent a lot of time and money uh, with the, um, the Iowa Masonic Library um, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, they house the largest collection of Masonic histories and, and, and proceedings and other primary sources in the country. Um, and so I reached out to them for proceedings of different states and whatnot to really try to piece together this story. And what I found, just and anyone else who's who's been on a historical mystery, you probably know this as well, uh, when you deal with secondary sources, um, the secondary source may tell you a certain story. But when you start dealing with primary sources, a lot of times the primary sources will actually fit together like a puzzle piece. Um, and so that's what I had to do. I, I, I tried my best to just use primary sources from the time period, and what I found was the story that they told was consistent and the secondary sources were not. Uh, unfortunately, I know the reason why it wasn't consistent, um, which I'm happy to share um, a little bit about. Um, in 1903 – there was a book published by uh, William Grimshaw, who was a grandmaster here in D.C., where I'm a member, and um, 
his, the name of his book was The Official History of Freemasonry Among Colored People in North America. Um, that book was used as our official history and is still cited even to this day, uh, but it was really did a lot of it, uh, it was really cited a lot in the first half of the 20th century. Um, unfortunately, that book has been shown to be full of holes and historical errors. Um, and what I've uncovered, which was really mind blowing to me, and again, wasn't something I set out to do, was uh, a lot of the things that William Grimshaw got wrong was because he was trying to erase and to circumvent the story of William Matthews and King Solomon Grand Lodge. He tried very consciously to erase this entire story from history, I think, because it was politically expedient to do so for him and in his kind of motive, motivations. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but, but as far as genealogists are concerned, um, I definitely recommend utilizing fraternal um, histories, newspapers, the, the fraternal columns specifically from newspapers, uh, as well as firsthand um, primary source proceedings and minutes and whatnot, if you can get your hands on them. And the Iowa Masonic Library is a great place to, to, to go research. Right, because you have a question in the chat. Are, are these Masonic proceedings open to viewing by non-members? I, I wouldn't have, uh, have mentioned them on here if they weren't. <laughs> the library, well, as a matter of fact, and, and I'm happy that you asked that question. Most, uh, like I, get that, I get that kind of question a lot, which is kind of funny to me. Um, a lot of um, Grand Lodges, including the one that I'm a member of, have libraries in them. Uh, people think, I don't know why people think that they're like going to get, get like eaten by a dog or something if they, if they knock on the door and say, hey, can I come visit the library? No, they, the library is actually a public library uh, that people can go and visit and do research at. Um, you know, as well, I've helped a number of people to include Miss Swanigan um, to 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 do that type of type of work um, to really di- you know dig out this history. Again, this this entire book was written based off of one question. Really, she wanted to know what was the deal with her ancestors getting shot and why. What did it mean that he was the grand lecturer or not? And who was what was his relationship with William Matthews? You know, this all you know. And, and she was there with me really every step of the way. Uh, in the process of this book, and I'm and I'm very appreciative of her and her family um, allowing me in. They've they've really uh, adopted me into the family. I mean, I I even had a um, at her family reunion in 2017. I had a I had a sticker that said I'm you know I'm James and I'm I'm the adopted son of Denise Swanigan <laughs> at the family reunion, which is really humble. Well, I yeah, hope really that Denise will will call into the show tonight. Uh, just to share with us her her thoughts about the research and how it has uh, helped her understand more about her ancestor. Well, one of the Absolutely. things that I, you know I want to say, and until I actually visited the library with you, I certainly mm-hmm. didn't know that the library was open for people to go and to look at uh, the documents in the books. So. Why is it that people don't know that they can go to the various uh, Masonic uh, libraries and look up information? Um, I think it's because, uh, well, I think it's two parts to that answer. One is that we live in an era of Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, and all these type of things uh, where people are watching these documentaries on History Channel and they're getting a certain perspective of, okay, these particularly with Freemasonry, where it's like this super the super secret organization where you know 
Jay-Z and Barack Obama and everybody, they're all talking this nuclear codes and all this type of, you know, it's really like spectacular stuff, right? Um, and that's, first of all, that's not true. <laughs> Neither Jay-Z or Barack Obama are members of our organization. I just want to clear that up. But um, but also um, they're, they're, they're not getting, particularly for, for, for your audience, they're not getting the, his, the history of the African-American Masons or other fraternal organizations. And that's partially because we just haven't done the best job of telling our story to outsiders. Um, I think that mm-hmm. – um, and, and the reason why that is, I think, is because we've kind of been off to ourselves for such a long time. I don't think that there's been a lot – from a scholarly perspective, I don't think that there's been enough of a push to kind of mainstream the information um, and the history mm-hmm. and, to, and to show the importance of it. You know, I, I mean, when I first got involved in genealogy, um, I learned very quickly – I said, wait a second – you know, I could see online on Facebook or wherever people would say, "Oh yeah, my ancestor, he was in a lodge, or he was this, or she was that." And I would say, "Wait a minute, you don't understand what the significance of that is. You know, uh, you don't understand that this person. I mean, there's there are actual not only records that you can go look at and say, okay, well they were a member of this lodge. No, no, no. There's a story here. There's a context. There's an entire narrative that your ancestor played a part in, but especially if they were were." particularly, you know, active, um, that you should go back and look at. There are published histories already prior to my book that you may want to look at to kind of tell the story of your ancestor. Um, But no one else had really done that in a way that that out people who weren't members could could grasp it. So so what I tried to do with the book was um, not only in terms of marketing it in different spaces, but even in the way I wrote it, you know, I, I made sure to include a glossary in the back for, of terms because I know that yes. everyone's not going to understand what, you know, when I say most worshipful grandmaster, th- that term for some people, maybe not for me, but for some people, that term is very intimidating. <laughs> you know, when yes, I say, you have no idea what that title. means. Right. People have no idea what it means. All it means is, just as an example, all it means is that's the person, he's in charge of everybody. <laughs> to right. put it in layman's yeah. terms, that's all it means. Mm-hmm. He's the person in charge, okay? Uh, you know, or even the 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 grand uh, lecturer, that, like I mentioned earlier, you know, um, yes, the grand lecturer gives speeches, but they're, in a very practical way, his job is to instruct and inspect lodges to make sure that they're practicing the rituals correctly. And to make sure they know what you know what they're supposed to be doing and not supposed to be doing, you know that's their job. And and sometimes they set lodges up as well. That you know again, very practical things that these people are doing. But if you don't know the terminology and whatnot, you may say, okay, well that's nice to know, but you move on. But someone like me, I would say, no, let's stay on that for a second. So I try to make sure to include a glossary in there of terms uh, to try to help you know non Masonic members to to understand. Um, you know the importance of this. Another thing that I did in the um, appendix as well, which I which I actually have been encouraging other um, Masonic writers to do recently, is I tr- I made sure to include a appendix with a list of lodges, um, so that people could see when I say this is the lost empire. You know, I did include in the story um, narrative about different lodges that were set up when I found them, but if I didn't get to tell every single lodge's story. What I did was I said, well, here's here are the lodges. Here's where they were. 
approximately when they were founded. And you may go in there and find out, oh, wow, King Solomon Grand Lodge, there was a lodge in my town. Maybe my ancestor was there. You know, James Morgan may not have covered it in his book, but that may be something for you to go out and, you know, and, and to look for. Um, maybe you can come back to me and show me what I missed, you know. Um, so, so I try to do that in a very practical way to help the genealogy community to see the um, importance of these organizations. And I, and I tell Denisha all the time, I'm actually jealous of her, insanely jealous of her, because again, this was this this book is almost 500 pages, and it's really a report. <laughs> it's really a report back to her about her ancestors' uh, Masonic involvement. <laughs> you know, off off of right. one question. So right. so I so so for your audience, imagine what stories out there for you. You know. You, you're so right. Now, you you have questions, so let me just throw out some questions for you. And for sure. those of you that want to call in, the number is 646-200-0491, and please press 1. That's the only way I will know you want to ask a question. Okay, so the the first question is, is there an awareness? among your members that there is a disconnect between the organization and the general public? Mm, that's an interesting question. Uh, um, I think in general, yes. Um, there's also, um, to, some, to some extent, there, there's, there's a, um, there is, I think there are some, some whose sentiment is they don't really worry about that part because, again, we're, the organization itself is not for everybody. You know, fraternal organizations are not – it's not like uh, one of these organizations where you go out and you – everybody should be a member. Everybody should join my church or whatever. No, that's not how these organizations – the culture of them kind of is. Um, but I do think that over time that that's backfired in a way because with exclusivity of – Membership also can come exclusivity of information, and then before you know it, you're so exclusive that you're just sitting there talking to yourself. Um, so, so I think that that kind of has hurt us, particularly with the um, um, the post baby boomer generation. You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, there really has been a, a statistical drop off in well in membership based organizations. Period. There's been a drop off, but in fraternal organizations, it's been even worse. If you're not talking about um, you know BGLOs, Black Greek Letter Organizations. Um, right. so, so that is a problem. Now, on a scholarly level, um, I don't think that there's been enough of a conversation about that, and that's why I'm kind of I've kind of taken on the mantle myself to kind of ring that alarm a little bit and say, wait a minute, we've got a plethora of organ of of, of documents and already published histories. I mean, uh, you know, you yourself, like you mentioned earlier, we, we, I know you're very big into. Uh, Louisiana history. So when you came and visited us at the library, I made sure to pull out the history of Prince Hall Masonry in Louisiana from 1842 to 1979. That book's already published, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but if, but if no one's showing you that, you're doing a lot of great work, uh, uh, Bernice. But you may not know to go look at that as a source to further your own research, you know. So that's, that's why I've right. kind of, I kind of rung the alarm, so to speak, you know. Well, we have a caller on the line. Uh, caller, your eight, uh, Erico eight one six. Do you have a question or a comment? Hi there, Bernice. This is Denicia. Well, hello. <laughs> uh, I am listening to James talk, and I wanted to tell him thank you ever so much for giving me the most thorough answer to a simple question I could have ever possibly asked for. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> 
quite, when you, when you, when you approach James, did you have any idea that James was going that this was going to stimulate James to write a whole book? <laughs> I had no idea whatsoever. All I knew is that I had watched James. We both belong to a Facebook group called Our Black Ancestry. It's a very active genealogy community, and I watched him for a number of months and how he answered questions and how he responded to people. And I knew when I came across the articles mentioning Masonic activity from my uncle that he was the person I needed to ask, and I would get a really good answer from him. Well, I would say that I did. Um, I, I had no idea that it would take four or five years to get a complete answer, and I really don't believe the answer is complete yet, but it's been an absolutely exhilarating ride. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Well, that is wonderful oh, to say that you connected with him on a Facebook page and, and yes, look ma'am. at where you are now. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, and really, anybody who is doing genealogy, African-American research especially, if you see any mention at all whatsoever of Masons or Eastern Star, look into it further. You have no idea what may be in store for you. Because I, my uncle wrote, my uncle Henry wrote a book about his life before, during, and after slavery, but he made not one mention of his Masonic history. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I saw his name in an article mentioning that he was a grand lecturer that I knew any kind of fraternal organization was involved. That's when I reached out to James and asked him, what does all this mean? And so through James's help and the help of historical newspapers and the proceedings of the Masonic Lodges, I have more than names on paper. James has helped me give, you know, flesh and blood and life to those names on paper, something that never would have happened had I not reached out to him. So if you have anyone in Masonic history in your research, look into it. By all means, look into it. You're going to find more than what you ever imagined. Absolutely. And if I can jump in real quickly, um, one thing that we found about um, Ms. Swanigan's um, uh, Bruce family line, I mean, she really comes from a Masonic family. I mean, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, her Uncle Uncle J.J. was Grand Treasurer of Missouri. We found out that Senator Bruce himself was a Mason. Um, Denisha's her Sandy's your great great grandfather, right? Um, correct. Correct. Her her, her great great grandfather Sandy Bruce had once been what's known as the Junior Grand Warden of Missouri, which means that he was the uh, one two three. He was the fourth in line to be Grand Master um, of Missouri at one time. And her uncle Henry, like she said, he didn't mention anything of his Masonic involvement at all in his book. Didn't mention getting shot anything. Well, it turns out, as I mentioned earlier, you had this fight between the National Grand Lodge Masons and what were known as the Independent Masons. Well, it turns out, even though Uncle Henry had been under the National Grand Lodge, at a certain point, he decided to separate from William Matthews and this National Grand Lodge group, and he went with the Independent Masons in Kansas, and he himself became Grand Master of Kansas. So he became a rival Grand Master against William Matthews. You know, we found speeches, all type of stuff that wasn't even mentioned in his autobiography. You know, so so it was really a, a great experience. And I'm so blessed that I could uh could could share that with, with Denisha and her family. 
Well, thank you I, so I much, Denisha, for calling in. And we have oh, some other questions. We have some questions uh, coming out of the uh, chat room. But one of the questions is, did you have to get approval from the Grandmaster before publishing your book? No, I did not. Um, and the reason why I did not was because um, my book is – it's it's kind of it's, it's kind of interesting. My book is a history of the really of the King Solomon Grand Lodge of Kansas. Um, that Grand mm-hmm. Lodge existed from 1867 till about 2005, and it no longer exists. Um, again, that Grand Lodge was with the National Grand Lodge or the Prince Hall Origin Masons. Uh, I'm not a member of that organization. I'm a member of the the other side, the Prince Hall affiliated Masons, and so we don't recognize each other anyway and the and that grand lodge doesn't exist anymore so there really wasn't anybody to get approval from or anything it was just kind of like hey here's an interesting story that i found that happens to be the nexus point between both groups but there wasn't anybody to even have to ask permission for which really was kind of liberating as a as a writer um i think anybody who's into history and writing you know we hate being shackled by something like something like that if i had to ask permission from somebody to write my story that would have I, I, that would have really rained on my parade, so to speak. So I'm really thankful mm-hmm. that I didn't have to go to anybody. I just wrote and told the truth as I know it to be. Right. And so the next question is: Do you know uh, how to find out about membership in St. Louis from 1910 to the 1920 period? Oh. Um, the, the thing that I would say to do is to look at the uh, proceedings of, of the Grand Lodge of Missouri. Um, Missouri does have a – I think they probably have that stuff. Um, what I would recommend that person do is to contact the um, – the, they can contact me you know, directly. I'm on Facebook and all that type of stuff. Um, uh, or they can contact the, uh, the Iowa Masonic Library and ask to see – uh, to, to get those proceedings, they will. If you pay the fee, they will scan them for you and email them right to you through Dropbox and all that type of stuff, um, and to go through them. Um, proceedings, not all the time, but nine times out of ten, they would have the membership lists in the back of the book. Um, you know, for each lodge. You know, when you talk about 1910, 1920, I mean, you're probably talking hundreds of lodges, so you'd have to go through. Lodge by lodge by lodge, or check the death records, uh, which also are kept in those type of proceedings. Um, each year, they say who died. If in, in some states, if they had an insurance policy, they'll mention the insurance policy also. Um, so that's how that's the basics of how to do that. Um, if you don't have anything else to kind of go on, um, if you do, if that person does have something else to go on, then I would recommend using that as a lead also. And again, they can contact me uh, if they feel the need to. Right. And another one, I mean, another question, and what what do you recommend? You know, just the, the ordinary genealogists, uh, how mm-hmm. do you recommend they utilize the Masonic proceedings? Uh, so in, in genealogy, and this is it's kind of interesting, in, in, in the Masonic kind of world, a lot of people know me as the genealogy guy, and then in genealogy, people know me as a Masonic guy. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of funny, but um, but I would say use the same methods that you learn in all these genealogy classes and that, that people learn on your show or not, um, such as the fan method, you know, friends, associates, neighbors. I mean, um, when I found my fourth great grandfather uh, being a Mason in Alabama in the 19, early 1900s, I had to sit down and say, okay, 
who were these other 15 guys in this lodge with him? They obviously were friends and knew each other. They spending time and money and, and energy together. Who were these people? Lo and behold, some of them were relatives. Some of them, you know, their children intermarried. Some of them. So I would say, you know, to do that, um, you know, if you get a hold of something that says, well, hey, this person was a member of this organization, you know, and so were these other people. Well, who were they? Were these people um, in a higher social class or maybe even a lower social class than your relative? Were they related? Did they, were they enslaved together even? Um, you know, there's a number of different ways that you can that you can utilize those records, but you have to take the kind of stigma away from. Well, that's that's the Masons, that's the Elks, that's the Oddfellows. No, it's it's a source document. You do the same things that you would do with a census record. You know, if you if you're an experienced genealogist, yeah, it's it's attractive to look at your ancestor on a census record, but are you reading the full page? Are you going to look at the page before and the page after, or two pages before, two pages after, that kind of thing, you know, to get a real sense of what your ancestors' life was like and who they were. I, I, that, that's the, probably the best thing I can think to say um, on that one. Um, okay, so yeah. and also, is there um, a protocol? Or how do you address people uh, concerning historic data? What is the appropriate person to ask and what should you avoid saying when you do pose the question? Um, I mean, I think just being honest and upfront and respectful is, is, is key um, for any organization that you reach out to. Um, people have to remember that um, when you approach non-genealogy based organizations, the person may not be a genealogist you know, or what have you. Uh, you definitely want to find, you know, who is the historian for that lodge or grand lodge or whatever, and and talk to them and say, hey, this is what I'm looking for. Um, try to be as specific as possible. You know, you may say, hey, I'm trying to verify membership. You know, I have this is what I what I have. Um, try to give them something to go on. You know, because sometimes even even myself, people will come to me and say, well, here here's this person's name, and they lived in Virginia, and I go, okay, there are a lot of people in Virginia. <laughs> you know, so so try mm-hmm. to be methodical when you do that, because even though I know we seem like this big spooky organization, we're, we're human beings too. We're not. <laughs> so, so, so I would just say, I would say to, 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 to do that. And, um, and again, apply the same message you would to any other source. You know, when you go to the national archives or to, uh, you know, anything else you, you ask, you, you, you come up with a list of questions. You say, Hey, this is what I'm trying to find out to verify or to dismiss. Uh, can you help me? you know, and, and kind of go from there, um, but also to be respectful, too. Um, one thing that I think that I've come into contact with over time is people who aren't members of fraternal organizations, They sometimes they can be judgmental, which doesn't mm-hmm. help the research process because, you know, I say, hey, look, you know, people don't, for the most part, um, don't pay me for, for, for work of this nature, um, so I'm happy to do it for you. But be respectful of the organization of the, um, not just not, and not just for me, but because your ancestor was involved in it, you know, pretend, or potentially was involved in it. Um, so if it means something to them. You know, you may not understand it, and I don't. You know, I didn't write this book to recruit a hundred thousand people to, to become masons all of a sudden. Um, I wrote it to try to humanize who we are and to tell our story or, or one aspect of our story. And if you're a genealogist, that's what I think we're trying to do, right? We're trying to humanize our ancestors from being 
just a name on a census record to being grandma such and such or uncle Henry or whoever, you know. Um, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. So one more question and then we're going to close out. So when, okay. uh, when you're, when you see a Masonic symbol on a headstone, should one assume mm-hmm. that there was a lodge in that time where the person is buried? Um, yeah, I think it's safe to assume that. Um, you can't, you know, of course you don't want to just assume it. You want to go back and really verify it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, if they, if, if they were, if they if you see some type of fraternal image on a, on a headstone or what have you, you will definitely, uh, want to follow up on it. Um, you want to say, Hey, are there a lot of other ones in that area? Um, maybe the lodge that was local at the time, or maybe still exists, they may have purchased heads, um, um, headstones and burial plots for their members. So you want to go back and try to say, hey, what lodges were in existence? And the way you do that is the same way you do anything else. I mean, I've had people who get so spooked out, and they say, well, how do I find out where they were? And I asked them, I said, well, have you looked in the directory from the time period? Have you looked in the newspaper? Well, no, I haven't. Well, that's your problem. You didn't look. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. so try to use those same practical means you would do for anything else in genealogy to apply to your ancestors' uh, social and fraternal um, activities. And um, I think a lot of people will be surprised at, at, at what they'll find um, in doing that. You know, um, yeah, Grandpa may have just been the janitor at the high school or something like that, but in his fraternal life, he may have been the most worshipful grand potentate of the whole eastern coast. You know, I mean, we we don't know, but we have to go back and find that information um, to get Grandpa back in his proper historical context or her proper yes, historical context. Yes, and and, and it's and it's a journey worth going on. To find Absolutely. as much as you can about your ancestors. Well, do you have any parting words? Yes, yes, I do. Um, you know, to quote uh, our good friend Angela Walton Raji, she said this to me uh, a while back, and I really received it when she said it. Uh, when talking about fraternal organizations, she said that, um, that these are ordinary people who lived extraordinary lives and did extraordinary things, and and that's really, I think, the message um, that I would want to leave with. With, with the listeners tonight, um, you know, again, our ancestors, they may have, to some people, they were just a sharecropper or they were just a, a, a domestic or whatever, but to themselves and to their communities, they may have been a number of other things. You know, William Matthews could have just been just a Civil War veteran and a local business owner, but he was also the Grand Master of all African American Masons in the Old West at one point. He was also um, a protector. He was also a leader um, politically for his community, and uh, and even though he was divisive at times, uh, he was still, I think, a race man first. And that's really the story I try to tell in the Lost Empire, uh, Black Freemason in the Old West. Well, thank you so much, and and I love that quote: "Ordinary people who live extraordinary lives." And so, James, where can we find you speaking about this topic? Are you scheduled to go around the country? Just give us an idea so that people can follow you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I've I've, I've had a couple of really great engagements already in, uh, in my home state, New Jersey. I just had a book launch at the uh, African American Civil War Museum here in D.C. Uh, next week I'm actually flying out to Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, for the Philaxis Research Conference, um, I, I will be speaking at um, at FGS uh, this coming summer. Um, I'm also uh, I don't know if I'm going to be speaking 
as of yet, but I, I, I plan to attend OGS. I, I hope I hope that I get selected to be a speaker there. I don't know yet. Um, um, so so I'm all you know, I'm all over the place and of course I always want to promote Black Progen live, uh so on YouTube and in, in the Prince Hall Think Tank to, to folks to check that out. And if anyone's interested in getting a copy of the book, uh it is currently available on uh the Lulu bookstore. That's L U L U uh, you know, dot com. You can just go in there and type and, and check it out. Uh, it will. It's currently available in um in hardback edition, and it will be available in other uh, platforms uh, soon, but but not not quite yet. But um, but yeah, uh, definitely please support. And and I'm telling you, if if you check out the book, you'll be surprised. I think at what you what you will find, because even though it's a Masonic book, I think it's just a great story about black black people in the old west. Um, so yeah. Yes, it, it certainly is a great story indeed. Well, thank you so much, James Morgan the Third, for sharing with us the Lost Empire Black Freemasonry in the Old West from eighteen sixty seven to nineteen uh, excuse me, nineteen oh six. Yes, I'm right. And everyone else, please remember your ancestors left footprints. And you should really follow those clues, just like Denisha did. She followed the clues. She contacted James. And and think about all that oral history that you're getting, family records, and, yes, research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages and also listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji, and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell Smith. Thank you so much for joining Ancestors Footprints, Blog Talk Radio, and I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, James. Good night.